So is there anything you'd like to talk about? Any questions or comments? Speak loud. comment was that for her the, the sweetest experience was just the, the sweet soft breeze on one side of her cheek the meditation is nothing more than that it's just knowing that and also noticing the quality in the mind around it in other words was it just open open to it and feeling it or was there also a liking a holding a wanting or not you know so the practice is not only being aware of what's arising but also in knowing our mind's relationship to it and this can get very subtle you know and so that's why it's always about investigation it's not about simply relaxing into a flow although that's part of it the other part is the investigation of our minds and and just as a just as a little clue as to what's going on in the mind it might be interesting to notice if there was a difference in the quality of your mind when you were feeling that nice soft breeze and when you were feeling some discomfort from sitting so long was there a difference in the quality of the knowing or not and so that that's sometimes the contrast between noticing pleasant and unpleasant things reveals to us what's going on in our minds and it can reveal things that we might not have even been aware of all right, so that's good. When you ask the question, what is a thought? Um, that's a very provocative question. Um, oh, sorry. Um, when you ask the question, what is a thought? The answer came right away. When I looked at it, it came, it's a strategy. And uh, then there was a thought on the heels of that, which is, what would it be to live without strategy? It was, it was really mm-hmm. compelling. No. What would it be? No, I saw. Yeah. <laughs> that that question, which really could almost be held as a koan, you know, what is a thought? I mean, sometimes we have responses like that and we see how it's functioning which is really what you know you saw it as it's functioning as a strategy for one thing or another on another level you can you can hold the question what is a thought 
I may get this word wrong, phenomenologically. <laughs> you know, just what is it as a phenomenon? And on that level of the question, we're not particularly looking at how it functions, which has its own interest, as you saw. But when we're looking at just the question, what is a thought as a phenomenon, that has its own tremendous interest because we have endless thoughts in a day, countless numbers of thoughts, which are driving us as various strategies. They're driving us in all dimensions of our lives. I think it's very rare that people stop to ask themselves the question and then to look, well, what is this? What is this powerful phenomenon that's actually driving our lives? You know, I, I just recently, I was channel surfing, and I happened to channel surf through... Uh, the old Judy Garland movie of The Wizard of Oz. So I kind of stopped for a while and watched it. And I happened to catch the scene where they're going back to the wizard, you know, and, you know, having gotten what he had asked for, and then Toto pulls the curtain aside, <laughs> and the wizard is revealed, you know, and it's just this little old guy pulling a lot of levers. Thoughts are kind of like that. Thoughts are like the wizard hidden behind the curtain. You know, and because we haven't seen what a thought actually is, we give it or attribute to it all the powers of the wizard. You know, we, we, we just hand over our lives to thoughts. And yet, we pull the curtain aside and look to see what it is, it's amazing. Because there's not much there. It's just, it's just like this little energy blip in the mind. And yet we're seduced through inattention, through, through the habit of not paying attention to the arising of thought. We just get seduced over and over and over again into handing over the power of our lives. You know, and sometimes thoughts are helpful and wholesome, and often they're not. You know, but we don't even have a chance to exercise discernment if we're not aware of what they are. So it, it is very provocative question, what is a thought, on many levels. So every, every, time, uh, every time you become aware of a thought in the mind, just think Toto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, and it, it, it will immediately unhook you. So why, There's a mic coming. So why are we wired that way? Basically, I think it's habit. And we, we just have not been trained. You know, we have not been trained at all to be attentive to our minds in this way. We've been trained to use our minds, you know, in various disciplines. 
But not too many of us grow up having been trained to observe our minds. And so we've just established these habits of inattention. Um, So I wouldn't think of it so much as being hardwired in a particular way, but just this is the habit of mind that's been established. We can we can establish new habits. That, of course, is the training in awareness, the training in meditation, that it actually is possible to learn how to be attentive to what's going on in our minds. And I don't know if this analogy is going to really hold or not, but it's something like skiing in that at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, even the first time you're out on the slopes, you know, and you're still falling all over the place and you can't do anything, but it's engaging. You know, and it's engaging enough for many, not, maybe not for everybody, <laughs> but for, for many people to kind of keep you going until you actually you know, learn a little bit about how to move down the mountain. Well, for me, the first time that I sat, the very first time I sat, you know, somebody, I'd been in Thailand in the Peace Corps then, and I had an intellectual interest in Buddhism, but I had never practiced at all, and I was going to these discussion groups, and I'd studied philosophy in college, so my mind was very intellectually oriented. I was asking all of these questions, and People were getting really annoyed with me for coming. Yes. They, you know, it's one of these obnoxious people who just doesn't shut up. So finally, I think one of the monks who was at this time said, "Why don't you try meditating?" You know, and so I got all my stuff together and I sat down and I set my alarm clock for five minutes. You know, so. But it was an amazing five minutes. It was like the first five minutes on the slope. It wasn't that I had any tremendous you know, experience, really. But what I did see was that there was a way to look at the mind instead of simply looking out at the world through it. Well, that was an amazing discovery. To say, oh yeah, I can, I can actually watch what's going on. So I think that's what happens as people first begin, first get a first taste of watching their minds, even though as in skiing, we're falling all over the place and getting lost and distracted and a lot of hindrances and all the stuff that happens, but still the amazing discovery that we can actually look in and learn something about it is tremendously compelling you know, and very onward leading. So even though we have been in the habit of giving all this power to the thoughts, that's a turning point. Mike. Is the stillness um, where you don't feel any push or pull? You're just kind of at that place. Um. Yeah, I would be a little... uh, I'd make a (laughs) distinction here between calm and equanimity. And stillness could kind of refer to either. And so I I think it's more than just to to 
notice the difference. Calm is a state as kind of in, in the opposite of restlessness. You know, when the mind's not agitated, the body's not agitated, it's just in a nice place of calm. And that's a state that sometimes comes in the practice. Equanimity is the quality in the mind of impartiality. So you could be equanimous about restlessness. You could be equanimous about any kind of difficulty that arose. High indifference. Yes. I'm not so familiar with that phrase, but if it means that quality of high, of impartiality, where there's just it's like space. Space holds everything. The equanimous mind holds everything, and in that equanimity, in that impartiality, it has the chance to learn. And still, by this, you mean the equanimity or the calm? I don't know what equanimity Well, it's, it's what I was just saying in terms of impartiality. Yeah, high okay. Yeah, the, with that quality, yes. then that can be with anything that's arising. You know, there's movement in the mind, there's calm in the mind, there's discomfort in the body, there's pleasant sensations in the body. Equanimity means we're just open to it all. Right, yeah. right. right, 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 right. Yeah. When you say uh, to know what's happening, um, it's, um, it's a funny paradox. It's a bit like trying to figure out what a thought is because I immediately get into what is it to know a sensation or uh, um, feeling in the body. And uh, could, could you say a little bit more about what you specifically mean by that directive? It seems like when I go into that sensation, it tends to uh, dissolve and be unknowable at some level. There's no bottom to it. Okay, in in talking about knowing what's arising, first, keep it very simple, because this isn't esoteric. I mean, when we hear a sound, for example, we're aware that of the sound. We're aware that we're hearing. We don't have to do anything special to do that. Right? And so that's the same thing even in sitting and holding the mic you know the sensation of, of holding the mic. So the knowing is happening all the time. It's just that we often don't recognize it because we can be lost in our thoughts or, you know, either about that or about something else, and we're not simply in the knowing of the experience. What happens to the experience when you're knowing it, a lot of different things can happen. Sometimes it does dissolve. Fine, then just know the next thing that arises. You don't want to be holding on to an object in order to know it more deeply. Right? Because that, that just becomes another kind of attachment. So it's, to, it's just to know in the, in the simplest possible way, and then whatever happens, maybe it gets stronger, maybe it gets weaker, maybe it dissolves, maybe something else arises. And then you just know that. 
I might come out of the Zen tradition, so there's a slight terminology uh-huh. difference there, but it seems like you're talking about just um, error perception. Yeah, I, the, using these words, it gets a little tricky because <laughs> in English we use words, the, these particular words, kind of in an ordinary way, and in different Buddhist traditions, they have very specific meanings. I think, I think for now one could say just that. Although know that perception within Buddhism has a very detailed definition. Uh, what's interesting about the knowing... Knowing is going on all the time. For everybody, whether you meditate or not meditating, people are not unconscious. You know, they're knowing different sights and sounds and smells and tastes. But there's very rarely recognition that that's what's happening. That we're lost in what's being known. Rather than recognizing, oh yeah, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this. So that's the difference. It's not that the knowing is special. It's the recognition that we're knowing. And that's what the practice is. And in a way, that's what makes it so simple. Because it's not about getting something that we don't have. The knowing is going on. So we just have to kind of settle back and acknowledge it. And in that acknowledgement, then, as I said, we can make the next step. Well, what's my mind doing with what's known? Right? What's the attitude? Is it getting attached to it? Is it averse to it? Is there resistance? Is there closing? Is there openness? Uh, so it's really all about... I'll just step back a minute. You know, in this tradition, in, in this Vipassana tradition, sort of the key meditative word is mindfulness. Uh, that's really, We're practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness is the the usual translation of a word in Pali, sati, S-A-T-I. And, you know, as always, there's there's always language translation subtleties. So sati means being aware of what's arising. But it also has a meaning to remember. That's another meaning of the word sati. But it it doesn't mean necessarily remembering some past event. It means remembering to recognize that you're knowing in this moment. Right. So, really, all we're practicing is remembering. You know, it's just remembering to pay attention, remembering to come back. It's not about getting something. And this is where, you know, how. When you're learning to ride a bike, and you know we don't have the balance, and you know, we're, we're holding on really tight to the bike as if that will help us balance, you know, because we're afraid. But of course, it doesn't help us to balance. And somehow we just have to keep doing it, and maybe with some help from somebody, until finally, you know, we get going, and then it's just rolling. You know, it's like we found the balance. Well, it's very similar in meditation. In the beginning, we're kind of 
you know, holding on tight to what's happening, we're trying too hard. And the whole practice really is one of relaxing, just letting it happen and remembering to be aware of what's arising by itself. We don't have to make anything happen. But it's hard to learn that lesson, just just it's kind of hard to get that balance at first. Is this making sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. For those of you who, who may not know what he was referring to, each year I, I teach two or three months at the Forest Refuge. And a few years ago, I came across a book which you might be interested in. It's a book called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. And Satipatthana is the discourse the Buddha gave on the practice of mindfulness. You know, so it's an incredibly central book to the Buddha's teachings. It's just he lays out in amazing brevity and depth the whole range of mindfulness practice. You know, and all the different arenas it can be... um, developed in. So it's a, it's a very powerful discourse. I had read it many times, and there's a lot of repetition in it, and I knew it was an important sutta, and I was actually doing that practice. But for many years, I would just read it, and, yeah, yeah, but why do you have to say it so often? And <laughs> <laughs> but then I read this book. It was It's by a German monk. His name is Analayo, who it was actually his PhD thesis in Sri Lanka. And he did this amazing job, to my mind, of unpacking the sutta. It was just this very careful, unbiased analysis and elaboration of each of the sections <laughs> in the sutta. And one of the things I appreciated about it so much was that he's both a practitioner, so he was... He was dealing with it from a practice point of view, but he was also a scholar, and so he presented different sides of the points of controversy within it. You know, because the different schools have lots of different interpretations about what different things mean. And he just laid it out. You know, these people say this, these people say this. And in reading the book, it just inspired I really got into it. And it inspired me to start giving this series of talks as I was teaching at the Forest Refuge. And, and I just went through the sutta, really line by line, 
you know, and, and over the, the last few years, it's like there have been 30 or 31 talks and still not done. Just, and it's so amazingly rich. Uh, and so that's, that's what was being referred to. It, I don't know where you got the CDs, <laughs> whether it's available through Dharma Seed or, yeah. Um, anyway, for those interested in that level of detail, uh, it, it might be interesting. One of the things I learned from you know the the old saw if you can't do it you teach it <laughs> it sort of felt like that <laughs> because I learned so much you know in just preparing the talks and and it finally dawned on me you know in all of kind of there's a refrain in the sutta that the Buddha repeats like 13 different times, the same refrain. So it finally dawned on me in preparing all the talks, oh, maybe this is important. <laughs> <laughs> he said it 13 different times. <laughs> maybe you should really, really look deeply at this. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't remember the whole uh, the whole refrain. Uh, I mean, some of the key the key words in it, which kind of elaborated a lot. Um, was about practicing. Uh, with ardency, clear comprehension, free from desire and discontent with the world. And there was more, but those were some of the key elements in it. And each one of those words has tremendous meaning. What does it mean to practice ardently? You know, what does it mean to live free of desire and discontent with the world? I think there's also a word independent, free of desire, discontent, independent. And, and it, was just, it was just really exploring, and not theoretically. The, the beauty of the sutta and all of the teachings, really, it's not about Buddhist philosophy. You know, it's so easy to read things in that light. Oh, you know, this is, this is the Buddhist philosophical viewpoint. For me, that's really uninteresting. It's much more compelling when you think or, or would imagine the Buddha actually sitting there and these are the words he's saying to us, you know, to practice. Because the, the first lines of the sutta are about this is the direct path to realization. So he's just laying it all out. You know, if awakening is really our aspiration. You know, do we want to awaken from the old habits of forgetfulness and ignorance and delusion? Okay, it's just spelled out. But it takes really looking into it with respect to our own experience, not as a belief system.
And I think that's one of the great gifts of the Buddha's teachings and great contributions to our Western collage of spiritual cultures that this is not about belief. It's all about investigation. It's about wisdom. It's about, okay, this is how we can look. This is how we can observe. What do we discover when we do this? You know, so it's tremendously inviting to each one of us. And after I finished the Peace Corps, I realized that I needed... I'd just begun a little practice and didn't really know what I was doing. I realized I needed a teacher. And I came back to the States for a bit and but very much wanted to pursue this. So I decided to go back to Asia. I went to India through a whole process of wandering. I ended up in Bodh Gaya, uh, which is where the Buddha was enlightened, and there was a teacher there. And the first thing he said is what completely uh, hooked me. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. You know, there was nothing to join, there was no belief, and it was so refreshing. And it seems such common sense, it seems so obvious. If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And then it's all revealed. So then it's a question of learning how to observe it. What are the tools? What's the methodology? Maybe take, take the mic. I'm sorry. This, this sounds like a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it coming. <laughs> uh, when we know what's rising, and we're deeply mindful of everything that's happening, uh, what happens to the knower, to we as the one who is knowing what's arising. Okay, this, this is a very important question. I'm kind of, kind of approach it from different sides. Um, I'll, I'll approach it from the end point first, and that is that there's no knower there's only knowing. The consciousness or knowing is arising together with whatever is known. Right? And so there's hearing consciousness, seeing consciousness, tasting, smelling. Right? So knowing is arising in each moment with its own specific object. So consciousness itself, knowing itself, is a conditioned arising phenomena. It doesn't belong to anyone, and there's no one behind it to whom it's happening. It is a process. So what we call self, or what we call I, is really a process of knowing an object, knowing an object arising and passing away in each moment. Because the knowing is quite a bit more subtle than the objects which are known, Right? If, 
the sound, the sight, the sensation, they're, they're pretty obvious. The knowing of them, that's not so obvious. The fact that we're knowing is clear, but what the knowing actually is, because it's like space, it's, it's not a material phenomenon. And so it's a much more subtle phenomena to observe. And because of that, we are in the habit of identifying with the knowing. And in that identification with it, we create the sense of an observer. We have created a sense of a self who's observing this passing show of phenomena, and we're not seeing, usually, that there is no one behind the curtain. Right? That really what the process is, is just knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising and passing very quickly. One way that I found of... beginning to get an experience of the selfless nature of knowing, the fact, that, the fact that there's no observer there. And this is something that I've talked a lot about in different retreats. It's a, it's a linguistic convention. So, for example, usually, in, in our usual way of speaking, conventionally speaking, we would say, I'm hearing a sound, I'm knowing a sight, I'm feeling a sensation. It gets very interesting if you start framing experience in your mind in the passive voice. So, for example, a sound being known, a sensation being known, a thought being known. That linguistic construction takes the subject out of it. And it's amazingly powerful. The language we use conditions the way we experience things. Powerfully. In in ways we're not really even paying attention to. So when when you consciously reframe it in this way, and it's not that you keep repeating those phrases in the mind. It's just you kind of said it. Okay, thoughts being known. It's very, very easy to do and helpful to do in walking. You know, when you're walking, the sensations of the movement are so tangible and obvious. It's, it's, it doesn't take any effort at all to feel the movement. And so as you're walking, if you just frame it, oh, sensations being known. And so you say that to set it up and then simply be in the experience of it. As I say, you don't have to keep repeating the words. Okay, sensations being known. And then, it's quite amazing. It's this great mystery of awareness that begins to reveal itself. Because we see... Just a quick experiment. If you would just move your arm, with, with that in mind. It's just, you move the arm and it's just the sensations of the movement being known. Okay, keep in mind, this is not esoteric. (laughs) This is just simple. (laughs) 
you move the arm and sensations are being known. So as you stay with that, there are a lot of things you learn about the nature of awareness. One is that it's happening all by itself. When you're moving your arm and sensations are being known, you don't have to make any effort at all for that knowing to happen. It's just happening completely spontaneously, effortlessly, and this is what I love the most. It's knowing things exactly. It's not a moment before, not a hair's breadth after. It's exactly. It's like, if you think of awareness as being a perfect mirror, and then take the mirror away. So it's an amazing phenomenon. And it's happening all the time. You know, it's not something we have to practice to make happen. And so then you get a sense of what it means to say, awareness being, uh, movement being known. There's no subject, there's no I there. There's no observer there. Would you say that's an insight into no self? Yes, I would. I would. Hi, I need to bring it down to something that I can take away with me. Um, You could take this away with you. (laughs) If there is no I, if there is no subject, then there is no you and there is no object. So how can any relationship develop if, 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 for example, you are just a man in a chair passing whose voice I'm hearing for two hours. There's no relationship there and I don't see any window to a relationship because if I had any attraction to you or to your teaching, I would say, notice it comes and it goes and it is nothing. It is being experienced and now I want my lunch. Sounds good to me. (laughs) I've always experienced Buddhism, and I use the word chilly, because I do not see how this has anything to do with love or friendship or commitment or or any of the values that we believe in if it's just a belief and therefore it doesn't exist. So, um, I get the question. <laughs> Help me with it. There, there. No, that's it. Uh, the heart. Yeah. Because without yeah. the heart, frankly, it seems like a disembodied balloon mm-hmm. holds the head, and we are observing it. Oh, that's a great question, an important question. I think that there's often. what I see is as this misunderstanding of what it's about because sometimes of the way it's expressed or the language it's used. So I think that question can be addressed on a couple of different levels. 
So I'll just pick the the broadest frame first. Okay. Within certain traditions of Buddhism, they talk about two levels of truth. Relative truth and ultimate truth. Relative truth has to do with our conventional world of experience of I and other, self and other, and solidity of objects, and just the way we are in the world, our our ordinary way of being in the world. Ultimate truth sees things on quite a different level. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. Okay, on the conventional level, you know, I've said, what is this? It's a glass. And the glass functions, and it holds water, and I drink out of the glass. It serves a purpose for relationship to the glass. If we looked at this through, and I've never done this, so this is just my idea of what happens. But if we looked at this through a high-powered microscope, or an electric microscope, whatever that is, we would probably... We would see a completely different reality. We would not see glass. There would be no glass there. In the same way, on the conventional level, there's self, there's I, there's other, there's relationship. On the ultimate level, it would be like looking at this through a high-power microscope. Everything we saw on the conventional level it would be a whole different ballgame. Now, there are a few important implications here. People tend to hear this and either uh, become attached to the relative level because it contains all the, all the values that you mentioned. Right? And so, oh, that's what's really important. Other people, and sometimes it's spiritual seekers of one kind or another, dismiss the relative level, and that's not important. What's really important is the ultimate level, where there is no self or I. From my understanding, a real spiritual maturity happens when we see that the relative and ultimate levels are expressions of each other. They're not two different things. It's the same thing, it's the same experience seen from different perspectives. Now, the value of seeing the ultimate level, of understanding the ultimate level, even as we're engaged in the relative world, is that we can then engage in the world with much greater freedom. Okay, so this is going to take on a slightly different tack. Within that relative level of self and other in relationship, people, I think, often confuse love and attachment. And they're two very different things. And it's very instructive to, again, not to believe this. Everything I say is an invitation just to investigate for oneself. But when I look in my own life, I have seen so clearly the difference in my experience when I'm attached to someone 
and when I'm feeling love for that person. When there's a loving feeling, it's, it just feels like an energy moving out. It's an energy, what I call a generosity of the heart. It's not a this. It's a this. What is attachment? Attachment is a this. They're completely opposite, and yet for most of us, they've gotten so intertwined that we hardly can separate them, and we can hardly imagine love without attachment. Right? So this becomes... Uh, part of the exploration of this whole path through understanding the more ultimate selfless nature of phenomena then as we engage on the level, on the relative level of relationship what comes forth naturally is love rather than attachment so that's, that's how they begin to play together. So that's one little angle. Intimacy. People, where in Buddhism is intimacy? You know, it feel, as you said, it feels so cold and so... It's so interesting. <laughs> what... What really is true intimacy? And again, this is just my understanding of it. But for me, true intimacy is non-separation. As long as there is a self, as long as that's not on the relative level, but as long as that's the bottom line understanding, kind of your metaphysical belief, self in its very nature predicates other, predicates separation. From the perspective of selflessness, that separation disappears. And I'll just give you two examples of of how it disappears. When you're listening to music and you're just sitting and you're really relaxed, very relaxed, very open, do you ever have the experience, and I'm, I'm using this language now conventionally, becoming the music, where it's not you listening to the music. It's just, it's the music being heard. The subject is out of it. Is that more intimate or less intimate than I'm listening to the music? To me, it's much more intimate. It has come together. We can do that with people. It's not so easy. <laughs> but I'll give you an example. One, just one experience I had where you know, I had a taste of that. And this was not even particularly in an intimate relationship. It was in a friendship. There was a situation some years ago. It was a difficult situation. I was having... There was difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was sitting with this friend, 
and we were into it and there was some point of contention and it felt pretty deep and a lot of anger and defensiveness and judgment and you know that's what was flying back and forth and at a certain this was in the living room of my house you know and at a certain point I realized how much suffering I was feeling it's a, you know because you're in that very contracted separated feeling so I realized what was happening and I just felt this and then I did something just some shift of perspective shift of understanding and instead of reinforcing the notion yeah this is me he's over there and we're locking horns my mind dropped that and it's as if or in some way it did my mind became the space that held us both so instead of identifying here it just opened and it's like it became the space and the two of us were just in the space it was amazing in that instant of the change of perspective the quality of that space was loving kindness I was not trying to practice loving kindness it's just, that was the quality manifest in that non-separation and so I have really come to understand that love and what in Buddhism we call emptiness or emptiness of self is exactly the same thing you know we use different words and depending how they use people have all kinds of connotations and beliefs about it but in this context that I've been mentioning it's exactly they just completely came together so it's all I mean there's a very rich question you know but these are some of the things that come to mind about it one last teaching on this is from a one of the great Tibetan masters of the last century. His name was Kensi Rinpoche, and he was he was revered as as an amazingly great and wise being. He had one teaching where he said, "When you realize the empty or selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others." dawns uncontrived and effortless and that has just you know whatever small levels we can understand that emptiness of self that is what happens it's like we take ourselves out of the way and what's left is love and compassion so Eric Just a, a quick comment and question. Um, I also want to express gratitude to you. Uh, decades ago, you were the doorway to practice for me. I remember. <laughs> one never forgets that connection. And, and, and the question is that um, those five minutes with the alarm clock in Bangkok happened just about 40 years ago, if I'm right. Um, 
after four years of practice, would you be willing to share? Have I learned anything? (laughs) 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 Would would you be willing to share with us what the cutting edge of your own practice right now is? The growing edge of your own practice. I will, and I'll I'll do it by way of a Zen koan that, while I was on retreat during my sabbatical, uh, this was a time when I was I was just sitting in my house by myself and, and doing you know intensive practice, and I had this big stack of uh, you know the old Buddhist magazines that you know I get every month and basically just put aside, <laughs> you know, Buddha Dhamma and Shambhala and Tricycle. So I had this big stack. And so just as I was sitting at home and, um, you know, I wasn't listening to Dharma talks, or, but I would just just open these at random. And actually, from the perspective of being on retreat, I was amazed at how much good Dharma is in them. You know, sometimes in our busy lives, we can look at them and, you know, not really see the depth. One of the one of the articles in one of those magazines had a famous koan from the Zen tradition. Now I, I need to preface this by saying I've mentioned this in a few of the talks, and because there's a there's a certain cleverness to it, people often kind of hear the punchline and laugh a little bit, because you know it has that cleverness. But it's really not funny. <laughs> it's a, there's a profound wisdom in it. And so I'm just suggesting don't divert yourself, you know, with, with just kind of an appreciation on, on the clever level, because there's, there's really a very profound teaching. Um, okay, and I'm, I'm also not sure how to pronounce this Chinese name, so I may get this wrong a little bit. But as most of you know, Bodhidharma was the person who brought, supposedly brought Buddhism from India to China. Um, and he was this very fierce, dedicated practitioner. It said he's, you know, practiced in a cave facing a wall for nine years. And, yeah. <laughs> and then one day this monk comes to see him and again here's I'm not sure of the pronunciation Hueka it's H-U-I-K-E that's the English transliteration very disturbed you know in his mind very suffering and, and deeply wanting to come to a place of freedom and he's outside the cave beseeching Bodhidharma to teach him Bodhidharma's just sitting there as the story goes, and I don't know whether it's just a story or not, finally, Hueka cuts off one of his arms and sends it in. So then Bodhidharma said, okay, this guy's serious. <laughs> he really... So he comes out, and they have this dialogue. And Hueka says, you know, I'm suffering so much... I'm in so much turmoil. 
please teach me the uh, the Dharma seal of the Buddhas. And Bodhidharma says, well, the Dharma seal can't be expressed in words. And Hueka says, I'm suffering so much, please pacify my mind. So Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. And Hueka says, I've looked for it and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. That's my cutting edge. It's like, what does that mean? What is that experience of... You look for the mind and there's nothing to find. The knowing is there. So it's not nothing. The knowing is there, yet you look for your mind, there's nothing to find. In the understanding, there's nothing to find, it's already pacified. A Dzogchen teacher expressed it somewhat differently. He said, when you look for the mind and can't find it, the not finding is the finding. From a Taoist, uh, you can approach this from a lot of different sides. There's a wonderful Taoist story of, this is from a book of poems of Chuang Tzu, who's a famous Taoist sage, compiled by Thomas Merton. And it's a wonderful book. I think it's called The The Way of Chuang Tzu. And there's one poem in there called Starlight and Non-Being. And the, the, the little story of the poem is about starlight going in search of non-being. So it's, it's kind of a nice image, you know, just, okay, so starlight goes all over to the depths of the universe looking for non-being and can never find it. And then the, the very last two lines of this poem Starlight finally realizes he will never find non-being. And the last two lines says, if on top of all this, non-being is, who can understand it? So it's all around the same thing. You know, what is that ultimate mystery of the nature of mind, you know, the nature of awareness. It's already pacified. So this is, this is, um, you asked for cutting edge. (laughs) So if you don't fully grasp it, either do I. (laughs) But it's, that's, that's what I'm interested in these days. Sometimes I'll just be walking around and and the, that phrase will come into my mind, already pacified. And it's so interesting what happens just in that moment. It's like the mind will drop back 
Ah, oh. there's nothing to want. Not the next moment, not the thing, not the per. It's already passed. It's already done. And to see the difference between the usual mind, which is always seeking something, it's always leaning forward into the next moment, wanting something. And then even if it's just for a moment, you know, to have that, oh, it's already pacified. We feel the difference. And I'm going on and on because everything leads to something else. This is an exact expression of the Buddha's enlightenment song after his, after his enlightenment, traditionally. You may be familiar with that famous house builder quote, or house builder you've now been seen, the house builder of self. The last lines are, realized is the unconditioned or ultimate freedom, achieved is the end of craving. That's the same thing as already pacified. It's that when the mind lets go of that craving, that wanting. And again, going back to, to, the, to the earlier question about the terminology of Buddhism, sometimes people hear that, oh, I don't want to stop craving. I don't want to stop. What would life be without wanting? You know, that's where the juice is. So one last story, and then I'll be quiet for a bit. Just as an example, to give, you, to give you possibly a sense of the flavor of the freedom of not wanting, this is a very mundane, very mundane example. It happened in New York City, but I'm sure there's comparable situations here. But occasionally I go into New York and just to visit friends or to teach. And, you know, I can be walking down, you know, maybe Fifth Avenue or someplace like that. And, of course... Just everything you could ever want, and the best of what you could ever want, is there. And so I noticed, kind of my usual mode would be walking down and just, you know, looking at all this, you know, what can I want? (laughs) And then one time, one time I was visiting, and I don't know, I was just in this space, I was walking down the street, and I really didn't want anything. I just didn't want anything. And I noticed the incredible difference in how I felt walking down the street not wanting as opposed to walking down the street wanting. It became so clear, so clear that the wanting itself was a suffering and the not wanting felt so open and so free and so light. So this, again, this is a very mundane example, but we can bring it right into the moment-to-moment unfolding of our lives. So it's rich. I mean, the practice is incredibly rich. Okay.
And my question might sound maybe, but I never had a chance to ask before. So um, my question is, do we all come to the same knowing? And is it knowing the awareness, is it knowing the truth? Is it, or is it truth being known uh, by meditation or practice? Or do we encounter familiar based on memory or previous commitment or encounters? I think so. Insight happens on many levels. You know, and as the practice goes on, the kinds of insight or the kinds of wisdom that grows and unfolds you could say changes or deepens or goes to other domains. So, for example, it's not uncommon in practice, and I would say especially in the beginning years, but even afterwards, where just as our mind gets a little more attentive and a little quieter, um, lots of things from our lives begin to situations and relationships and things we've done in the past really come up to our awareness in very vivid ways. And often we have new insight, we see it in a different way because in the meditative space we're no longer defending anything. We're not protecting anything. We're, we're, we're in a more open space and so we see the situation uh, you could say more objectively or from many different sides. So a lot of insight is on that level of just understanding our lives and our past experiences. So that's one one level that happens. At a certain point, as the momentum of awareness grows, you know, we're not struggling to keep bringing our mind back again and again, but there's a certain flow of awareness, the content of what's arising becomes less important than the process of how it's happening. And so then the insight is not so much understanding the psychological, emotional levels, but it's more understanding, for example, the flow of impermanence on more and more subtle levels. We're seeing how everything's just arising and passing. And in that light, we're looking and seeing what I suggested in the guided meditation. Well, how is our mind relating to all these things? You know, is it relating with attachment? Is it relating with aversion? So we're learning about the attitudes in our mind, not so much about our psychological history at that point. And so it just keeps deepening. Did that, did that get at what you were asking? Or was there something more specific? My specific question is: uh, Do we arrive to the same truth by, by knowing? Is the, is the common, common truth to which people arrive? I think there is. And I just let me say that the truth is not Buddhist. <laughs> The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He didn't. He taught what's called the Dharma. And what Dharma means is natural law. 
I mean, it, it means, okay, how are things working? And the particular, I think, brilliance of his understanding was the depth, the level of his clarity, and he could see so clearly, okay, in this natural law of mind and body, he could see, okay, what are the things that lead to more suffering? What are the things that lead to more peace and happiness? That's why he just laid that out. And then he invited us all to check it out. You know, okay, well, look here and see what happens. Look here, see what happens. Okay, first let me say I can only speak really for myself and not the Buddha. (laughs) Just just so we have that clear. (laughs) I think it comes down to something very simple, which he said at different times in the suttas, that he really only teaches one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. You know, and I think all of the teaching is really about understanding how through our thoughts and patterns of mind we condition suffering and what are the possibilities through a training of mind to come to the end of suffering. And you could call that happiness, you could call it peace, you could call it wisdom. This, I just came across a, a little phrase which nails us. <laughs> it comes from Shanti Deva, who wrote a book. He was like a eighth century, something around then. A great adept. He wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and this is a teaching that the Dalai Lama is. He, he both embodies and is, has been a tremendous inspiration. So one of the verses in this book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, is, and this is a slight paraphrase, we, we are all like foolish children, shrinking from suffering and loving its causes. <laughs> and I read that. <laughs> got me (laughs) and it's just so profound because we and this is one of the essential points of the Buddhist teachings is understanding the law of cause and effect that things are happening because the conditions are there for that situation to arise things are not happening according to 
the teachings, they're not happening by divine intervention, they're not happening by accident. Everything arises out of causes. And so to shrink from suffering and yet to be doing the very things that create suffering keeps us mired in it. And so I think it's incumbent upon us, if we're interested actually in freeing ourselves from the various kinds of suffering for ourselves and others, because that's the bodhisattva part of it, you know, where we can really, when we understand ourselves, then we can begin to be of help to others. To, it's incumbent on us to really look at, okay, what are the causes of suffering? You know, and they're right there. You know, if, if we're willing to look, it, take, it takes a certain interest and willingness and discipline you know, to look at our minds, to look at our lives. Well, what are the patterns of thought that keep bringing about suffering? Just as an example, I think my favorite Burmese English translation, you know, because many of my teachers were Burmese who did not speak English, so it was always, or often through translation. And one time my teacher was, I think it was in response to a question, and he was going on and on and on, kind of a long thing in Burmese. And then the translation <laughs> came down to four words. <laughs> and this is my first, this is great. Lust cracks the brain. <laughs> and there's probably not one of us here who at least once has not experienced that. <laughs> I mean, when that force is powerful in the mind, we are not seeing clearly. (laughs) Sometimes, with just moderate consequences, sometimes with devastating consequences. Because we just are not seeing clearly. So that's that's just one example. And we could say the same thing of anger or hatred or... Okay, why, how, why don't we just sit for like three or four minutes and give you a chance to forget everything. <laughs> Let it all go. Okay, maybe start just with a few deep breaths and get settled back in the body.
just for a moment drop into that space of not wanting anything. Already pacified. Not wanting, not looking for anything, not expecting anything. Just letting things be. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.